Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let's read the story of creation. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Literally, it means the, word, uh, the earth became without form and void. The Bible says in Isaiah 45 that God did not create it that way. So the earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. I want you to notice that nothing happened until the word was spoken. Even though the presence of the Holy Ghost was there, nothing happened until the word was spoken. That tr that's the same principle that works in our lives. It's not about the power of God being present. It's about speaking so that the power manifests. Amen? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament. In the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. The firmament means sky. And God made the firmament or the sky. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth green grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. And every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beasts of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and upon every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Let's keep reading into chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. 
and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he rested from all of his work which God created and made. Here in the uh, second chapter, the verse literally says he made an end of everything that he made. In other words, if something wasn't made in those first six days of God's creative work, he didn't make it. Well, you can readily see there's no sickness on the earth in the account of creation. There's no sin. There's nothing that could harm or hurt anyone. So that has to mean, therefore, that the sin and the sickness and the things that we see, the tragedy and destructive forces in the earth today, were not made by God. And remember, folks, God's will never changes. He said himself, I am God, I change not. That means if it wasn't God's will for sickness to be on the earth when he created it, his will couldn't change to want sickness in the earth today. Now the second chapter goes on to give us a summary of the creative work of God. And the reason for that, remember God established himself in his word. He said in the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. Well folks there was no witness to the creation of the earth except for God. There's nobody else here to give testimony to it or of it. And so in keeping with his principle of things being verified, the truth being verified in two or three sources, he says it the second time. We won't read the whole thing, but I do want to bring to your remembrance here in verse 7, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 concerning the creation of man. It said, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Folks, I want you to, to see the parallels between that and in John chapter 20 when Jesus is uh, raised from the dead and appears to his disciples. He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now look at the parallels with the way God originally made man and the way man's spirit is reborn, at least in, uh, in the Genesis chapter 20 account. God breathed life into man. At the new birth, he does it again. He breathes spiritual life. He breathes eternal life into mankind. Now, folks, I want you to realize there's nothing on the earth, according to the account of creation, until sin arrives, until disobedience, Adam's disobedience, brings, uh, opens the door to sin and death, spiritual death. There's nothing that can harm mankind. We could say in the the grand scheme of things. This is the ultimate kingdom of God. It's a place where God rules. Not alone because he gave the authority of the earth to mankind. But God's will for man to have authority over all the earth and over all the works of his hands. That is the kingdom of God. You may remember when Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach them to pray. He gave them what the church world calls the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. It's not even a New Testament prayer. Now, there are some great principles in that that we can incorporate into our prayer life today. But Jesus instructed us in John chapter 16 that all prayer was to be made unto the Father in his name. Well, the Lord's Prayer doesn't contain the name of Jesus. So it can't be a church-age prayer. Again, there are great principles there that we can incorporate in the name of Jesus and make it work. But in the strictest sense, the Lord's Prayer was not a church prayer. But remember what Jesus said when he taught them to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, that's a prayer to restore what was originally the case. On the earth before sin entered the scene. It was the ultimate kingdom of God. It was the ultimate in the will of God being accomplished or being done here on the earth. But of course we all know what happened. Adam and Eve were, or Eve was deceived. Adam with his eyes wide open, the Bible says, disobeyed God. And their natural eyes, their physical eyes were opened. And they saw they were naked and ashamed. Now from that point, you may recall the curses that came upon the earth, the serpent, and man. And spiritual death begins to reign. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says. Wherefore as by one man's sin. Talking about Adam. 
sin entered the world and death by sin. And death began to reign. Sin and death began to reign over mankind. You may remember the instruction that God gave to Adam and Eve. He said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die for 930 years. Physically. But he was talking about spiritual death. And just as Romans 5.12, as we quoted just a moment ago, says, death began to reign. Death began to reign. Now, folks, all disobedience, all sin is unrighteousness. We know that to be true, right? There is no such thing as a righteous sin. There is no such, unright- there is no such thing as an act of righteousness being contrary to the will of God. So all sin and the death that it opened the door to is really unrighteousness. Now, there are two words that are used in the Hebrew and translated righteousness. And they both mean the same thing, or basically the same thing. They both come from the same root word in the Hebrew. And one, uh, one meaning of the word that's used in the Old Testament is rightness. And the other word that's used literally means right. So you can see there's very little difference between the two. And so all righteousness is an attempt by God, not that he tried and failed, but it's a work of God to restore things the way that they ought to be, to restore things to a right condition. Now these words that are used, these two Hebrew words that are used, if you expand the definition, it can include a lot of things like justice, judgment, but even the word prosperity in the Old Testament comes from this same word rightness because the earth was intended, the earth was created by God to serve mankind. Of course, part of the curse of uh, sin and death that came upon mankind according to God's account of it was that the earth would only produce then by the sweat of their brow, by the work of their hands. Thorns and thistles were now part of the, the, uh, the condition that would take place upon the earth. But that's not the way God made it. Now the word righteousness is used in the Old Testament 200 and some odd times. The first time it's used is in Genesis chapter 15 when God appears to Abram. Turn with me to Genesis 15. It starts in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels or body shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars. That means try to count them if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And notice verse 6. This verse is quoted four times throughout the rest of the Bible. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Here's one of those words that mean rightness. He counted it to him as rightness. Folks, everything about what Jesus did was to restore this world to its right condition. All the healings and all the miracles and all the wonderful things, all the great promises that are given to us and fulfilled in Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection after showing us a a perfect example in his three years of ministry what a man anointed of God could do. Everything about that was to restore the world to the right condition rightness now notice what God said about Abraham or said to Abram even before he showed him the stars of the sky and talked to him about his seed he said fear not Abram I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward 
exceeding great reward. You remember Hebrews eleven six. It says, but without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. That has to mean believe what the Bible says about who God is. But then the second part of it is, the faith that pleases God, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Here in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, where God says, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That's a continuous action verb that's used in the Hebrew. And it means God is continually protecting and continually increasing or rewarding us. And that's because he wants to. It's not like we have to talk him into something as if anybody could. It's not like we could, are trying to force him into what we want as if anybody could. That's the way God wants it to be. That's the way God wants it to be. Well, what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say concerning these things? Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, let's start in verse 6. It says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, literally since, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now let's, uh, let's stop and talk about a couple of these terms that are used, and then I want to read some more in this chapter. The word reconcile means a mutual exchange. It means an even swap, one thing for another. And so it said he reconciled us. Jesus reconciled or God reconciled us through the blood of Jesus, the death of his son. And certainly he's talking about the crucifixion and all the things that were associated with that. But now notice he says much more being reconciled. That means being made one with the father. We shall be saved. He's talking to people that are already saved. He's not talking about just being saved or just coming into the family of God. This word saved is the word sozo, and it's an all-inclusive term that means rescue, deliver, protect, save, to make healthy or to make whole. It's an all-inclusive all term. It means deliverance. It means victory over anything and everything here on the earth. In other words, the Bible is telling us that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the shedding of his blood, God has achieved this rightness that was lost in the earth. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not saying the devil is not here anymore or doesn't have any influence anymore. That's not the point. The point is that through relationship with God, by the shed blood of Jesus and the purpose for that blood being shed, Through that relationship with our Heavenly Father, the world can once again become right for us. It can once again become right in that the will of God can be done here on the earth in our lives, just like it is in heaven. Now, you know as well as I do, there's not a lot of questions that people pose about heaven. It's not that we know a lot about it. We don't. But the things that we do know about it convince us that just as there was nothing on the earth that hurt or harm man before sin came on the scene, there's certainly nothing in heaven that can hurt or harm mankind. Heaven is an idyllic place. It's a place where there's no harm, there's no sickness, there's no tragedy, there's nothing to destroy, there's nothing to disappoint. It's a place of joy and never a place of sorrow. We know that about heaven. 
Well, why would the will of God, since he never changes, why would the will of God be different in heaven than it is on the earth? He's the same. And according to the scripture, the blood of Jesus has brought that restoration. Now let's keep reading. We'll start again with verse 10. For since when we were enemies, we were reconciled. There's that mutual exchange to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. This word atonement is uh, an offshoot of the same word reconciled. It's talking about the mutual exchange. Wherefore, here's the verse we quoted earlier. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Let me make a couple of comments on this before we go further. I want you to notice that God didn't take revenge on mankind for sin. That was never his plan, never his purpose. It would have been real easy for God to be upset that man fell and just leave man to his own devices. But notice there where it says sin is not imputed where there is no law. That means just as in Adam's case. Until there was a law, until there was a law for him to break, he couldn't be held responsible. In the same way, because there was no law of Moses yet given, he didn't hold man responsible for his sins. Now you want to talk about the love and the mercy and the compassion and the goodness of God. Think about that for a little bit. Think about the things that happened between Adam and Moses. Look at the earth and the condition of the earth, the wickedness of the earth in Noah's day. Yet the Bible says, even in that time, sin was not imputed because there was no law. Sin not being imputed upon mankind means that mankind wasn't held responsible for their own sins. Folks, there's a lot of terrible things and terrible people that are identified between Adam and Moses. And yet the Bible says God doesn't hold them responsible. The mercy of God goes beyond anything we can even comprehend. It certainly would make sense to us for God to look at the wickedness of man and say, well, they're wicked, they have to pay the price. But this says until the law came, there was no price for anybody to pay. It wasn't accounted to them. It wasn't imputed upon them. Verse 14 again, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, again, he's still talking about Adam's sin, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to many. Paul is making the argument that just like Adam's sin brought, opened the door to sin and death in the world, put us in bondage to spiritual death, even though we didn't sin in the same way, we didn't break the same rule or the same law that Adam disobeyed, the law that he was given of God and, and then disobeyed through the devil's influence. It's saying just like that affected many or brought the world into bondage to spiritual death, He's saying Jesus' action opens the door not to all of mankind automatically, but to whosoever will receive it. Verse 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. He's simply saying Jesus', uh, Jesus sacrifice, Jesus' action to present himself and shed his blood on the cross has a lot of similarities with Adam's sin in that it affects all of mankind. But it's different too. 
there are differences between Adam's transgression and Jesus' work for mankind. One of the differences is that Jesus' work covers many offenses, all of man's sin, not just the one sin of Adam. Now, folks, if sin is not imputed to those who don't have a law, which it says was the case from Adam to Moses, then why, if it's not imputed, then why doesn't God hold mankind responsible for their sins? He certainly wouldn't be able to hold them responsible for Adam's sin. We don't have anything to do with that. But it's Adam's sin that opened the door to spiritual death. So if mankind is now bound by spiritual death, which Romans 5.12 says we are, or were, before we found Jesus, then what price is there to be paid? Well, we've all sinned. We all have committed sin. Not the same sin that Adam did, but sin is the same no matter, no matter what the measure. For example, in the Old Testament, it says, He that is, has offended in one point of the law. There's 630 commandments in the law. Break one is like breaking them all. And so Jesus' sin not only, or Jesus' sacrifice, not only pays the price for original sin, but for all of mankind's sins. Verse 17. For if, here's this word since again, for since by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I want you to look at this in the context of what we've already stated. When Adam and Eve fell, the earth departed from that place of rightness. But when Jesus offered his blood as the sacrifice for Adam's sin and many offenses, all of the sins of mankind, when he paid that price, the Bible says it restores us back to the place of reigning on the earth. It restores us to that right condition that was lost through sin. Do you see that? Do you see that righteousness is not just something we say we have, but righteousness is something that provides supernatural benefits to us? Righteousness becomes the shield. Righteousness literally becomes the hedge like God, like Satan is complaining that God put around Job. Righteousness is that one thing, that single thing that restores rightness in us, in our relationships with the earth and the people around us. Now let's look at this again. The mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Let's look at it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Clearly, he's talking about the new birth. Clearly, he's talking about the regenerated human spirit. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. That word reconciled is the same word that's used over in Romans chapter 5. It means a mutual exchange. Sometimes the Bible speaks of uh, the fact that man has been ransomed out of sin and death. Well, we know what that is. We may not have been touched by kidnappings personally, but we've seen enough shows on TV and all that kind of stuff. We know how that works. Where a price is paid for someone's life, where a price is paid to the enemy who has taken the loved one captive in order to free that loved one. Well, in the same way, the Bible talks about Jesus paying the ransom for us. He ransomed us out of sin and death. He ransomed us out of the power of sin and spiritual death itself. And, and spiritual death is, is defined in the scripture as separation from God. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, in other words, here's the explanation of what that means. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, 
There's the exchange again that he keeps talking about. Jesus was exchanged for us. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice for us because he was worthy and righteous and able to make the sacrifice that we couldn't make on our own. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, again, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You know what the good news of the gospel is? The good news of the gospel is very simply that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the exchange was made. Life for death. His life was offered for our spiritual death. To the end that we might have his life. He took our death, we took his life. And that becomes reality through the new birth. Verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. He's not saying to them, get saved. He's saying to those who are already saved. He's telling them, since the exchange has been made, live as a reconciled man. And then he tells us why. He seals the deal. For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see that word made? It seems to me that a lot of people in the church age have the idea that God counts things to, as righteousness for us. But very few seem to really accept the fact that they've been made righteous. And without doubt, the devil will sure work on your head about that. He tries to make you think that your righteousness only goes as far as your obedience can carry you. But when you disobey God, when you stumble and fall into sin, when you knowingly do what you know is wrong, then somehow or another that changes or prevents us from ever really being truly righteous. But that's not what righteousness is, folks. The righteousness which the Bible calls the righteousness which is by faith speaks what the Bible says is true, no matter what we've done or how we feel about it. And that has to be the case because the Bible says just in the same way that Jesus was made sin for us, we were made righteous by the shedding of that blood. So if we're not really righteous, but that God just kind of says we are or puts righteousness on us kind of like a cloak, but it's not the real us, then that would have to mean that that's the only thing that he did with Jesus when Jesus took your sins and died for them. My point is very simply this, folks. In the same way that Jesus was made sin, you were made righteous. If he was totally made sin, then you've been totally made righteous. If Jesus paid a price that covered every man's sin, then that means you've been made righteous regardless of the sin your body experiences. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. I'm sorry, it's Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to read a couple of prophecies in the Old Testament about what righteousness would bring. Verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Let's point out a couple of things here. Notice, first of all, he says, fear not, because God is with thee. The implication there is that God will always bring you into victory. You don't have to be afraid of losing or destruction or anything else. That's the only reason those two statements would be connected together, aren't they? Or wouldn't it be? He says, don't fear because I'm with you. Since he's with us, there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, one of the most uh, freeing things you can do, one of the most liberating things you can do 
is to realize that the fear that comes against you is not you. The Bible says that we're in bondage to unrighteousness because of fear. And that's what Jesus came to break. Thank God he did. But if God is with you and his promises are true, what do you have to be afraid of? The devil attacks your body with sickness and disease. Maybe it it progresses to the point where the doctor says there's no hope. There's nothing they can do. If God is with you, what's to be afraid of? When circumstances take place that put your job in jeopardy and you're facing, and certainly the devil is screaming in your your ear saying that you're not going to have enough money, you're not going to be able to make it, bankruptcy is facing you and all different types of things, terrible things are going to happen. If God's with you, what's there to fear? Even when we bring tragedy or destructive things into our lives through our own actions, if God's with us, what's there to fear? We can always repent. My granddaughter plays a game to where there's always a bad guy in the story and always a good guy. And so we'll read these little books to her and stuff and she'll always speak up and say, that's the bad guy. (laughs) We were somewhere with them. Well, it was a little vacation we took with my uh, well, with all the family, the grandkids went to, <clears throat> and we were playing a game, and uh, and Aubrey was telling me who I was in this game we were going to play, and and she started picking me to be the bad guy. <laughs> so she says, "I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy," and I'd say, "I'm the bad guy." She said, "Yeah, you're the bad guy," and I say, "Uh, uh-uh, I repent." I explained to her that when bad guys repent, they can become good guys again. <laughs> so now every time in the story she comes to a place where she says, that's a bad guy, I say, what does he need to do? She says, a pent. <clears throat> so even if we've done things that have brought tragedy upon ourselves, if we a pent, We can still gain the victory. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. This word dismayed means bewildered and broken down. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. The implication there is your problems and your situation and whatever tragedy or destruction you may be facing might be too much for somebody else, but I'm your God. not too big for him he said I will strengthen thee yea I will help thee if God strengthens you then what what difference does it make if we feel weak if we feel helpless what difference does that make since he said he will help us Now, notice the last phrase. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. This word uphold means to lift up. It's used in a couple of places, not the least of which is in the Old Testament where it speaks of Moses being the leader of the children of Israel. And Joshua was fighting for Israel against the Amalekites. And the Bible says that Moses was standing upon the hill And as long as he kept his hands up, Israel won the battle. But his hands got tired, and so he started dropping them. And when his hands dropped down, then the Amalekites began winning the fight against Israel. So the Bible says that two men found a big rock for Moses to sit on. And they would get on either side and hold his hands up. And as long as as Moses' hands stayed up, Israel won the battle and won the victory. That's the word uphold here. It's talking about he will lift you up to a place of victory. But how does he lift you up? 
Notice he says, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Again, notice that righteousness is that characteristic, that quality that we've been made through the blood of Jesus being shed, through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's that quality that brings us into victory every time. In other words, even though we have battles to face, even though it's different, <coughs> the world is different from the time that it was first created, there were no battles to fight before sin entered the scene. Even though sin has changed the face of the world, even though spiritual death operates in a way that God never intended for it to do with his man, but only came into being because of Adam's sin, disobedience to God. The restoration to rightness is always an entrance into victory. Look with me in Isaiah 54. The previous verses in the chapter talk about Israel, how that they strayed from God and tragedy has befallen them. But it's always the same. God always keeps calling his people back. No matter what mistakes they've made or how long they've been mired in those mistakes or no matter the, the uh, degree of destruction that their mistakes have brought upon them. He's always calling them back. So verse 14, it says, In righteousness shalt thou be established. Notice what brings you to the point where you can be st uh, steadfast, firmly fixed, is in the truth of righteousness. Folks, one of the reasons that the devil tries to make you think you're unworthy or unrighteous or a sinner, one of the reasons that he keeps hammering that day after day, every day of our lives, is because he knows the, de the delivering force that the understanding of righteousness can bring into your life. That doesn't just happen automatically. We have to know about it. We have to take hold of it. Even as 11, Hebrews 11.6 says that we quoted earlier, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Why? Why does it take faith on our part? Why doesn't God just do what he's going to do? Which is the way a lot of the church world think he, thinks he works. Yet the Bible says that we have to take hold by faith what Jesus has purchased for us. The only way that we can be pleasing to God is faith. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 7 I believe it is says he that speaketh truth brings forth righteousness. So one of the most important ways that righteousness can be shown and manifested in our lives is by the words that we speak. God requires faith to take hold of anything and everything that he, that he purchased for us through the shed blood of Jesus. But that righteousness becomes the foundation for everything else in our lives. It's what stands us up. It's what brings us to the place where we know who we are. It's what brings us to the place where the power of God is manifested. In righteousness shall you be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. Notice here's fear again. The devil tries to work on us by making us afraid. But the implication here in this scripture is oppression can't take hold of you if you don't yield to fear. Again, if you come to realize the fear that comes against you, that's not you. That's what you're being tempted to take hold of. And the greatest temptation that you can ever overcome is not just as, uh, the temptation to sin, the temptation to steal or tell a lie or something like that. The greatest temptation that you need to overcome is the temptation to fear. Because if you won't fear, the devil has no foothold. The fear that comes against you is not you. 
So he says, In righteousness thou shalt be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, in other words, thou shalt be far from terror. This word terror just means destruction. For it shall not come near you. Notice the shield. Notice the protective nature of righteousness. See, folks, the righteousness which is of faith that Paul talks about is a manifestation of the character and the nature of God when we speak God's word. When we claim the promise of God's word instead of the circumstances and how things appear. That is an act of righteousness. You remember in the Old Testament where the 12 spies went into the, children, into the land of Canaan? 10 of the 12 spies came back and brought an evil report. You remember what, Bible, what God calls in the scripture in uh, Corinthians, the letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, calls that action where the 10 spies said they couldn't do it. 10 spies said God said it was a good land. We found that to be true. But there are giants that live in there, people with big walls around their cities, military might that outstrips ours. God said that they tempted him 12, uh, 10 times. In other words, the temptation that the 10 spies brought to God was the claim, the words, the things that they were saying that God couldn't bring them through. God called that temptation. God said they tempted him by speaking unbelief, by speaking failure. Well, if that doesn't please God, what does? Words of faith. Words that say you can do it. Not because of you, but because you've been made righteous. You didn't have anything to do with the righteousness being made unto you. Jesus took all that. But you believe the truth that tells you that he did do the work. And so you take hold of that righteousness. Folks, if the Bible can be trusted, if the Bible is true, if it's literal concerning these things, there is nothing that the devil can ever take hold of or nothing the devil does can ever take hold in our lives or in our bodies because of the righteousness of God that we've been made. Now, I know that sounds extreme. I know the, the devil's right there on each one of our shoulders saying, well, you know, but everybody's going to have something. Well, if the Bible's true and the Bible's literal, we don't have to have something. We don't have to have anything except what God has provided for us. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. Thou shalt be far from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Notice verse 17. No weapon. Everybody say no weapon. He didn't say not many weapons. He didn't say only a few weapons. He said no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me saith the Lord. It's as if God is standing up in the court of justice, the heavenly court of justice, and says, their righteousness is of me. Now, folks, that's exactly what God breathed into to, uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden. Where it says he breathed into his nostrils and he became a living soul. He breathed his life, therefore his righteousness in Adam and Eve. And until they disobeyed the, the word, the, the commandment that God had given them about the forbidden fruit, there was nothing, no thing that could bring them harm. And the devil was already here in the earth. So the picture we have of God's righteousness and the rightness of the world around God's children, even in the presence of the devil, was that nothing could harm them. Now, as far-fetched as that might sound to some, that's exactly what the Bible says. 
Our choice is either to accept it or reject it. We've got the same choices that the spies, the 12 spies had. We see what's in front of us. How are we going to respond to this? Ten of them said, we can't do it. We know better. We know us. The people look strong in the land, so we can't do it. Two of them, seeing the same exact things that the others did, said, well, all those things are true. They do have a stronger army than we do. They do have walls around their cities that are real big. But God said the land was ours, so okay, we're going to side with that. No weapon formed against thee shall prosper. Have you ever noticed the times in the Bible where it talks about that Israel would go out in battle against their enemies? And it would tell in several places, it would tell how many of the enemy was routed or killed or destroyed. And the Israelites didn't lose one soldier. We think of war in a different context. We think of war as destroying the enemy and the sacrifice, the number of men's lives, well, women too, but the number of lives that will have to be sacrificed to attain whatever goal they, we, the country has set out to accomplish. But that's not the way it was when Israel went to war. When Israel went to war, when they were in obedience to God, they didn't lose anybody. And they destroyed their enemy. God doesn't seem to be in a game where the enemy's numbers being destroyed are greater than our numbers being destroyed. So we call that a win. God's in the no weapon formed against you shall prosper business. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Finally, turn with me over to Romans chapter 10. Let's start in verse 5. Now let's start in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. This is Paul praying for those that persecuted him and tried to kill him over and over and over. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, he's saying they're zealous for God. They just don't know what they're doing. Would you think that? Would you have that same attitude if people were persecuting you the way that it tells about Paul being persecuted? It's a good goal to set. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They're still trying to be righteous according to the law, which nobody can do that. And as a result, they're failing to obtain any righteousness because true righteousness can only come through faith in Jesus. But since they're fighting against the message of Jesus being the Savior and the Messiah, in their attempt to gain righteousness according to the law, they're losing out on the very thing that they're trying to get. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses described the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. In other words, you get what you earn. You get what you deserve. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. In other words, he's saying the difference between the righteous, righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith is what it says. 
the righteousness which is of the law says, I've kept the word so I deserve from God the reward. But the righteousness which is of faith doesn't look for God to do something more from heaven than what he's already done. Or he doesn't look for God to bring somebody up from the deep. In other words, there's no righteousness to attain from the grave. But the righteousness of faith says this, verse 8. The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The righteousness which is of faith says the word of God is sufficient when received to bring about everything God intends. Now notice the difference between that and the idea that whatever the will of God is, he'll do it. The will of God is accomplished in our lives when we reach out and take hold of the righteousness which is of faith. What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For, here's the principle, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The word salvation is the word sozo. It means to rescue, deliver, protect, preserve, Heal, make safe, make sound, make whole. And notice how we take hold of that salvation. Confession is made un, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That means you can only take hold of righteousness through the words of your mouth. Believing in your heart. Believing because God's word says this is the way that it works. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem like our words should make things work like that. It seems inequitable for the words of our mouths to make the difference in our lives when we're talking about things like sin and sickness and disease. But God said that's how it works. I think if the things of God were harder to obtain, we might have better success. Because a lot of people are willing to do hard things as long as it can be some work of their hands that they can measure. But God says concerning receiving anything from him, he says anything that you work for is not the real thing. You have to set aside your desire, your natural desire to do something to earn a reward. And just to accept the reward because he's the rewarder. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Here's that restoration again. That rightness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That has to mean that everybody that believes on him will receive. Whether that be forgiveness of sins or healing for the physical body. Or the earth producing prosperity and operating in its right condition. It's all through faith. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich and all that call him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word sozo again. Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be healed. Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be restored. Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be made sound. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be everything that this word means. Deliver, protect, and so forth. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how they, shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? That's Isaiah 53, 1. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
Righteousness is a whole lot more than just the state that we accept ourselves to be in. See, righteousness is a force. Righteousness is a protecting force. Righteousness is a delivering force. Righteousness is a healing force. It's the foundation for everything that Jesus paid for and sacrificed his life for us to have. It is the foundation. It is the single force through faith that the will of God is done in our lives here on the earth just like it is in heaven. Since God's the same in his dealings with men on the earth as he is in heaven, doesn't it make sense that he would want us to be the same here on the earth that we're going to be in heaven? See, so much of the church world puts off eternal life as this thing that we will have or obtain or gain when we get to heaven. But folks, you'll never have more eternal life in heaven than you have right now. Not only that, but I'm not sure how it is that we're supposed to reign in heaven. Reign over what? Folks, the reign, our reign, the authority that man was given by the will of God was not something for him to exercise in heaven. It was something for him to exercise here on the earth. And if we don't exercise it here on the earth, there'll be no place for us to ever exercise it at any time. God gave man a task. And that was to occupy. To manifest the kingdom of God. The will of God on the earth just like in heaven. That's what we're supposed to obtain here on the earth. That's the job. That's the mission. And we can only do it because of righteousness. Think of all the times in Jesus' ministry regarding healings and miracles and such. Look at all the times that Jesus went back to his relationships with the Father when he was questioned about the miracles. People would magnify the miracles saying, how do you do this? And Jesus said, my Father and I are one. Now that's not the answer anybody wanted. The Jews tried to kill him for that several times. But every time, not even just in Jesus' ministry, but in the church age, the early days of the church in the book of Acts, when people wanted to know what was the source of the power and what the, how were they able to do the miracles and so forth, they always went back to a relationship with God. Because as flawed as they were, talking about the disciples, as flawed and as unworthy at times as they might have been because of their own actions, they were righteous men who had been commissioned by God to do the work. Just as Jesus was, a righteous man anointed of the Holy Ghost. Folks, your righteousness provides you with so much greater power an opportunity than most people will ever understand. But it's yours. They that receive the gift of righteousness, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. Shall reign in life. Whatever part of this life, your life, that you're not reigning in or reigning over, is an area of righteousness that has not been taken advantage of. Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for who you've made us to be. We thank you for offering your Son, Jesus, to redeem us. We call ourselves redeemed, Father. We say, because we are established in your righteousness and ever coming to the knowledge of the truth and what all that means, we say that no weapon formed against us shall ever prosper. As our heritage, we say that our righteousness provides us with forgiveness of sins, healing for our body, prosperity in our lives, safety and soundness we refuse to fear 
for you are our God. We refuse to be dismayed because you are with us. We declare, Father, that our righteousness is of you, not of ourselves. And that righteousness establishes a foundation to overcome all the work of the enemy that comes against us. Every bit. We'll not settle for a half measure or half portion. We refuse to allow any of the work of the devil to stand in our lives. We bless you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. Say this after me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am protected by that righteousness. I am delivered from the work of the enemy by that righteousness. I am righteous by the blood of Jesus. Jesus.